Tonight we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. And it's a passage that we've referenced several times since we've started this one another series. And I know so it's a familiar passage to you, but we're going to dig into it in the context of it a little bit more. Let me just read verse 2 of chapter 6 of Galatians. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the direct command here from God is that we bear one another's burdens. Well, a burden is specifically a weight. It's something that's heavy. It's something that sometimes is translated in a way that is results in uh, exhaustion because of a hardship. In fact, when Jesus talks about the day laborers, he talks about them carrying a, a burden. He doesn't use the word, it's not translated burden, but it's the same word that we would find here. It's that they were exhausted after a long day of work. It can be translated in the context of becoming weak as the result of working. And so if we think of a burden here, it's a weight upon someone. It's something that is weighing someone down and they're not able to carry it on their own. And so when we see that word bear, it means to raise or lift up or to remove or even carry. So the idea here is that we are to help carry that weight that is on another Christian. And so the implication is that they can't do it on their own. The reality of a burden is this. Every single one of us has some form of burdens that we carry with us. It tells us that it's absolutely essential that we have the fellowship of the church in carrying that burden because we can't carry it on our own. The weight's too great. And that's why God has not called us to be individuals but he has called us into a body. He's called us away from our individuality and called us into a family. Everything about the Christian language shows us that. That's why we pray to our Heavenly Father. That's why the Bible calls Christ our our brother. It's because we are adopted into the family. So what does it mean, this command to carry one another's weight? How does that look? Well, the general context which we find this in comes in this context of caring for one another. And specifically, you will see this in verse 25 of chapter 5 is where the the division of this really starts to to, uh, break itself out. You'll you'll notice in chapter 6, if you're having an ESV Bible, you'll have like a little heading there. That's probably not the best place for the heading. Um, because it divides the text where it really shouldn't be divided, because chapter 5 just really flows nicely into chapter 6. But it begins, if we live by the Spirit, and this is after a statement um, and a call that we are to walk in the Spirit, we are to walk according to the Spirit, all the way back in chapter 4. We see the fruits of the Spirit. And the verses previous to this. So, if... We live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, we're called here to walk in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? 
The first thing I would draw your attention to is the word if. That's a, a conditional clause that causes us to pause and reflect and ask the question, am I walking in step with the Spirit? Because that's what he asks. If, if we do this, if we live, I, I think that some translations remove that conditional aspect of the verse which is, I think, missing the point. It's to cause us to stop and reflect upon our life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, if we answer that, yes, I live by the Spirit, then the command is, then, let us keep in, uh, in step with the Spirit. Now, we are called to keep up with the Spirit, which is our starting place of faith. Chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, the context there is Paul's talking about works and the relationship of works, and those in uh, Galatia were beginning to take on a works-based attitude, which Paul says is a different gospel. He says, you were begun by the Spirit. So you think of the fervency a new Christian has when they come to faith. They're excited about it. They have a zeal in keeping and walking according to the commands of Christ. But what happens as we begin to face life after that moment of salvation, sometimes we, it begins to wane a little bit or we hit a valley or something to that effect. And so Paul is calling us back to that point. Remember, you began this way. You were called in the Spirit. And so you're to continue in that. You're to continue to walk in that way. So to keep in step is specifically to walk by the Spirit. Now, here's where we have to separate ourselves from a lot of the charismatic theology that exists out there. This is not some sort of subjective feeling of, I think I'm, I think I'm, walking, in, I think I'm walking in the Spirit according to feelings or how I'm feeling about something. That's not what he's talking about. It, where do we get the words of the Holy Spirit? We have an objective reality that no scripture comes by man alone, but is given by the Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 So, if we want to walk in step with the Spirit, it would make sense Then we follow the words of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to guess. We don't have to think, I got this tingly emotional feeling, so I'm going to make this decision. That's not walking in step with the Spirit. The Spirit tells us how to walk. The Spirit gave the apostles the words of Christ, brought it to their remembrance, so that they would write it down and contain it in a book so that we have that book. That is explicitly the work of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, any place where we begin to abandon the Word of God in our life, specifically in our walk, in how we make decisions, and how we live, and how we do things, then we've actually stepped out of walking with the Spirit. So here it is. If we abandon God's Word in anything, we're not walking in the Spirit. We can't claim to say, I'm walking, in the Sp- I'm walking and keeping in step with the Spirit if I do the opposite of what the Spirit has told me to do. I can't then, it's, they're antithetical. So walking by the Spirit 
is not an emotional thing. Walking by the Spirit is objective according to the Word of God. We don't have to guess what God's will is for our life. God tells us is our sanctification, it is holiness, and He tells us the route to that. The other thing is this, which also beats against some theological systems out there today. This is not passive. We're called to walk in this. This is our active obedience to what God has called us to do. Can we do that apart from the Spirit? Nope. We can't. But nonetheless, we are still called to walk. We don't just sit back and say, I'm going to let the Spirit change me and not do anything. We're called to walk. So how to live in the Spirit? He goes on to give us some, some specific Thanks. In verse 26, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So if this idea of pride is within us, we're, we're not keeping in step with the Spirit. You know, pride is one of the, the worst sins that we can have. How many of us would say we don't struggle with pride? So we, we all struggle with pride. There, and, and if we say, I don't struggle with pride, well, we just identified the fact that we've also broken some other commandments, right? But yet pride is that one thing that we make an excuse for. We make, that, we make the excuse for it and don't actually take it to the Lord and mortify it. It needs to be put to death. He specifically identifies a certain type of pride. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So it's no pride that aggravates one another. If we are not walking by the Spirit, we're not walking in the Spirit, if we are constantly provoking others, we are actually, at that point, acting like arrogant uh, Nuisance. Trying to think of a friendly word. He also says that we cannot have envy. We're actually to rejoice when others are doing well. We're to be happy at others that are having success and not rejoicing at their downfall. And so often that exists where we're actually not rooting for one another, but we want to see someone fail. Which is really preposterous when we're working for the kingdom, right? This is written in the context of a local church. So it tells us that these things can exist amongst us. So again, how we live in the Spirit. He goes on in verse 1 of chapter 6, and how this is works itself out. Brothers, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So rather than showing envy or provoking someone through conceit, uh, we are to actually gently be about restoring someone 
that has been caught up in a transgression. And we want to see that as, as caught up in it. So this is how we show love and concern. And so often as we've looked at these one and other passages, we realize that is completely the opposite of what we see in our society that wants to avoid confrontation when actually the Bible tells us that confrontation is a good and loving thing because it brings person into restoration. Now, if you look at the context, this command of not being conceited, not provoking one another, not envying one another, but rather we are to restore one another. Arrogance would rejoice, or envy might rejoice when someone's caught in sin, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe because there's some sort of issue, there's jealousy or whatever, there could be a rejoicing when that person's caught in sin, and ah, <laughs> look, at they fell too. No, we, we cannot have that attitude ever. We have to be heartbroken that they were caught up in sin. And the purpose of, rest, uh, of confronting them is that purpose of restoration. Now, restoration here, where it says restore him, it's the same word that would be used for building a wall or mending a net. And so this is building someone up that finds themselves in sin. So envy, conceit, pride, when they're caught up in sin, would actually be to tear them down versus humble humility and love would to take that brother that has fallen and to see them restored. It doesn't always feel that way if you're the one being confronted, but it must be presented that way. And the idea here is this is caught up in any transgression is the idea of being caught in something. And what that means is it's, it's, it's a different situation than one who is habitually in sin. You address that differently sometimes. This is the person that gets caught up in sin. They're not expecting to go out and sin. It wasn't intentional, but they find themselves in it, and now they're stuck in it. That's the picture. You think of in Numbers, how in the Mosaic Law, it speaks of unintentional sins and intentional sins. And so you can kind of get that same idea, is that you weren't planning on doing that, but you found yourself in that situation, now you're in that sin, and you're there wasn't what you were planning on doing. That's a different thing than the person that's willfully rebelling against God. You, you approach that sometimes differently, but nonetheless for the purpose of the same outcome, which is restoration. Now, when it says that they're caught up in their sins, that doesn't mean they're not responsible. They're still responsible, and they need to be held responsible for it. They still committed a transgression against God's law. And so what Paul is calling us to here in many ways is the first step in Matthew 18, verse 15, is that when someone is in sin, what do you do? What do you do when someone's in sin? You go to them. And what's the purpose? It's for restoration. We have to check our hearts for conceit, for envy, 
or any of those things before we do it. Now, if we become aware of another person's sin, we are to speak to them for the purpose of restoration. Let me just ask in a practical sense, should we share that with others? No. No. Now, this causes a lot of people to stumble. It says, you who are spiritual... At that point, I think a lot of reaction is this. Good thing I don't, that's not me. I'm not one of the spiritual elite. I I don't have to confront people in their sin because, yeah, I I know Jesus, but I'm not one of the spiritual ones like that. Well, let's let the Word of God correct our theology. Verse 25 of chapter 5, if we live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit. So if you answered yes to that, guess what? You're spiritual. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit, if we have the fruit of the Spirit working in our life, guess what? You who are spiritual. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, chapter 3, verse 3, Having begun by the Spirit. So who are the spiritual? It's anyone that's in Christ. So who does who who is this applicable to? It's applicable to the church, right? It's applicable to every member of the church. It's not a special class, it's not just the leaders. It's to everyone. And for the leaders, the leaders are Christians before they're ever leaders, right? And so this is an instruction for every single one of us. None of us can say, well, I'm not spiritual. If you're not spiritual, you're not saved. This is for everyone that knows and calls upon the name of Christ. So this here is what Jesus teaches us, Paul teaches us over and over again. And you see a little added command in this. It's to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Yeah. It's gentleness. So we're dependent upon the Spirit by His grace that we would be gentle in it. So it's a good idea to go to the Lord first before a confrontation and say, Oh Lord, You are a God of mercy and grace and I need your spirit to, to give me grace that I would be gentle in this situation. And, and that there would be a gentleness in their heart too. If we start with that before we just go in commando, I, we might see gentleness emerge. And so gently is to do things in humility and in love. And we specifically see that idea of humility Here, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Lest you too be tempted. And so, 
it means that we can fall as well. And we have to keep that in mind when we're confronting someone. If someone's caught up in a transgression, I would never do that. Yeah, right. Lest you be tempted and fall into that as well. That's going back to that verse 25, which speaks of our conceit and our pride. And so we have to have a spirit of humility and love. Now, gentleness, humility, and love does not mean weakness. And it doesn't mean a lack of firmness. Sometimes the the, the firmest hand can be the most gentle hand, right? And we we need to view it this way. And so humility is seen in recognizing that I could fall into the same sin or that I could need to be in a position of where I need to be restored. And so confrontation in this manner does not place one above another, but recognizes the person's own tendency to sin and that we live in this world still. Even though we're in Christ, we still live in this world and are susceptible to the sins of this world. In fact, Paul opens this letter in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, "...who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age." We live in this present evil age. And we, though are a new nature, we are a new person in Christ, we still nonetheless have the flesh. We deal with the struggles of the flesh. And so it's from here that he moves into verse 2 where he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So bearing burdens is a demonstration of walking in the Spirit. Now, what are these burdens? What is this specifically referring to? I'm going to give you three, four really, um, three and four are basically the same, but three different views of this. One is this burden is sin, sin or temptation, and that seems to fit the immediate context best. Calvin held this view. He says, this is the weaknesses or sins under which we groan are called burdens, bearing done by mild and friendly correction. Recent commentators, uh, many, a number of them have seen this as referring to financial burdens. I I don't think that you could limit burdens to financial things here. Um, I think that it could include it. If you look at it, this is a general, just general burdens, general weight that we, that we carry. Um, you would see an example of that in Romans chapter 15 in verse 1, where we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so just a general burden that people carry. Tom Schreiner writes this, The admonition, however, is stated broadly, and it seems unlikely that it should be limited only to bearing the sins of others, especially since believers have a variety of burdens that cannot be equated with sins such as persecution, financial difficulty, sickness, and the like. So that leads us to the fourth interpretation of this, which I think is it's a general statement that, it, that in the context certainly has a primary view on temptation, but it's still a general idea of burdens that the Christian carries. 
And here's where we recognize we all have burdens. We also all have temptations and sin that we can fall into. And so, if we imagine burdens very literally as a weight that a person is carrying, are, are, is it usually obvious? If I came in here and I had a 100-pound sack on my shoulder and I was carrying it, would that be obvious to you? Because I wouldn't be walking like I normally walk. You, you would say, that's a heavy bag that you got on your shoulder, Rob. Let me help you carry that. Well, it's the same idea with burdens that we carry. When you get to know someone, it becomes somewhat obvious, okay, something's not right here. And that's when in our fellowship, we're able to go to that person. You know, I noticed you got that 100-pound sack on you. How can I help you? How can I help you with that? Now, as we think about this, we are called to come alongside our family as a command and to help them carry that weight. We need to be involved in one another's lives. We need to be working with one another. And what guides our understanding of bearing one another's burdens is understanding the work of the flesh and the spirit. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You'll notice in verses 19 through 21, it tells us the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we see this list of things that are not a work of the Spirit, but a work of the flesh, that people struggle with. We're called out of those things that we once walked in. Those would be the things that we walked once walked in. But when you're called into Christ, you're no longer identified by them because you've been called out of it. But then we're given another list. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, what does that have to do with bearing one another's burdens? Think of it like this. What if the burden was a medical issue? Think about a medical issue. There was a medical issue, and we... It's really weighing a person down, and we want to walk alongside of them. But we find out in the process that they're a closet alcoholic. What do we know about the works of the flesh? Well, drunkenness is a work of the flesh. And so we see that there could be this correlation between the two. Again, I'm just giving an example. And so actually, in that idea of carrying the weight with them, we have to recognize those works of the flesh in how we are going to best help them carry that weight if we want to actually help them carry that weight. If I just encourage them while they're sick, but I see the root problem of it, and I don't address that, I'm not helping them carry that burden. I'm not helping them carry that burden at all. And so wisdom teaches us 
and also recognizing the works of the flesh, work, recognizing the fruit of the Spirit in how we do this, we, we then have to approach on how we carry it through that lens. And so another thing is, if this is involves of a burden of sin, wisdom teaches us by the fruits of the Spirit. If a person is crushed under the weight and guilt of their sin and we go to them and we confront them in a way that says, well, you know, this is, you're suffering this because you were such a horrible sinner. That's probably not going to help them carry that weight at that moment. That's not gentleness. That's not a work of the Spirit. You're actually at that point adding to the weight that they're already carrying. And so that's not a work of the Spirit. That's not in humility. We also have to recognize that it's, this is something that is difficult that they're facing, that we ourselves would not want to bear. So sometimes it's this. Has anyone ever been asked to help a friend move? Yeah, I'm always on the end of the couch and climbing into the back of the truck. And like, man, why did they ask me to, to move this couch? You don't really necessarily want to move the couch, but you're there to help your friend. It's a difficulty that you might not want to go through with a friend. But guess what? You don't got a choice because you're their friend. And so you have to be willing to help them with that. And if our attitude was to say, oh, I'm not walking through that burden with them. Well, let me just read you what Paul writes in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we, if we say, I'm not willing to carry that burden with them, then we no longer have the mind of Christ And so what this means for us is what Luther says, quote, Therefore Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones, that they may bear flesh, that is, the weakness of their brethren. So bearing one another's burdens also infers understanding that another person's burdens may be, in fact, sinful things that we have to help them walk through. Sometimes it's matter, there are varying degrees of sin. It can be matters of Christian maturity and discipleship. We have to see the best way to do this with them. And this is all to fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we look at that, Law of Christ, so often we are reminded of Jesus' words, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Now, there's a ton of ink spilt on what is that law of Christ. Well, let me just tell you this. It's nothing less than the words of Jesus, and Jesus' words are in contradiction of no other part of Scripture. So, what is that law of Christ? Well, you just follow the, the word of God. 
Jesus encapsulates it and summarizes it, loving our neighbor. Can you love your neighbor truly apart from loving God? Well, no. And can you truly love God if you hate your neighbor? No. Where do we find that moral law encapsulated in summary? It's in the Ten Commandments. Now, he goes on to say in verse 3, and we are going to see here a, a somewhat of a different theme, is bearing one another's burdens rejects the notion of the self-sufficient person. Our whole culture is, is pointed towards, or at least at one time it was, I, I backtrack, let me say that, uh, at one time our whole culture was, gained to go, or was moving people towards self-sufficiency. It's no longer that, now it's dependency but in a sinful way. But this is to say that there is no self-sufficient person. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so what does this mean? Either the person rejects others in helping carry their burdens because they they think they're something, or they just reject people altogether. Bearing one another's burdens means we may need others to bear our burdens. We're not self-sufficient. So do you hear that? There may come a point where you need someone to help you carry that. And there may be a time where you're the one that's helping. We're not self-sufficient. In fact, the Scripture shows that. So a couple of points that we have to recognize is we have to be in fellowship in order to recognize that. We have to be in fellowship. We won't be able to fulfill this command if we're not. We have to be building trusting relationships within the body of Christ. You know, last week, I think we looked at the idea of how sometimes we get our advice from the secular world, or maybe it was Sunday night that we talked about that. But we're so quick to get our advice from sources outside of the Christian community. No, we are to be building trusting relationships within the body of Christ. The other thing is is this, is that verse 3 teaches us, don't be so self-consumed. It's not about, it's not just about you. It's about the body of Christ. You know, none of us is the only person in this world. And I think this is, deals with somewhat the pride that we're confronted with in verse 26. So no man is an island unto himself. He is either going to be in need of help at some point, or he's going to have the opportunity to give help. But if he's removed from the fellowship, guess what? He can't provide it, and he can't receive it. And everyone loses at that point. Paul goes on to call us to self-examination in verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So this is a call to self-examination, testing your own work. There's an interesting thing here about boasting. Boasting and self-examination is not prideful boasting, but just means one is taking responsibility for their actions. You're not comparing yourself to others and then boasting. That's what it's referring to. It would be easy to find someone that is not as pious as you. So you think. 
going to say, look at me. He's going against that. This is for thinking that someone is something in regards to another person. He goes on to say, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, hold on. Doesn't that contradict what he just said? No. Actually, and that idea of the load here is a different word than the burden that we find in verse 2. And what this is telling us is that at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own behavior. You have to bear your own load. And so that load isn't a, way, a crushing weight, but is actually those burdens that we carry throughout our life and throughout just daily living. It's kind of a used would be used of a sack that one would carry about like you could think of someone carrying a backpack with the essential things of life. That doesn't necessarily bear one down. So how do we apply this? A couple of things I want us to think about. Bearing one another's burdens does not mean enabling or allowing sin. So we can never approach this as, I'm helping them carry that weight, and it lead to where there's sin that's enabled. Because then you haven't confronted them for the purpose of restoration. You've actually enabled it. Another thing means this, bearing one another's burdens may mean that I bear with someone else the consequences of their sin. So in other words, when we're bearing someone else's burdens, and if it's an issue of sin, what do we know about sin is there's consequences. So it's, it's not just a, a I'm going to help them through this sin, I'm going to confront them, now they're restored and I'm hands off. No, I need to walk with them through the consequences that they're facing with their sin now. So it's, it's a continued process. Another thing is this, is bearing one another's burdens requires hard work. It also requires sometimes hardship, heartache, disappointment. And in that, we have to go back to how we approach bearing one another's burdens through the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is patience. We need that. And in regards to the church, let me just ask you this one question. How many of us without hesitation would carry the burden of a family member? We would, right? What does the Bible teach us about the church? And you think about think about this passage. In Mark, where Jesus says this, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We're we're called into a family in Christ. And so, if we would do that for our our blood relatives, we must do it for our relatives that have the blood of Christ covering them. The reality of burdens in life are true. We recognize that we cannot always bear them on our own. 
And so this teaches us the importance, again, of the local church and the fellowship that must come with the local church. And that these things are provided in that context. You think of Proverbs 27, verse 10. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And that neighbor in this context is one that you are in covenant community with. And so we must come to grips with the radical transformation that takes place in salvation. We are not only saved and forgiven, but in salvation we have entered into eternal life and have been adopted into a family that is our eternal family. And actually the Bible says that there's a precedence there. Caring for our brother and sister in the local church body. So let us pray that the Lord's grace would be upon us and that our desires would be to always bear one another's burdens without hesitation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our greatest burden, our sin upon the cross and took it from us and that he gave us his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but one that is outside of us. And Father, what a great model for us to follow in the steps of our Lord is coming alongside our brother and sister, people that Christ died for. They're no more worthy, no less worthy than anyone else of your grace. May we come alongside one another by your grace to help carry our brother and sister through the difficulties of life, through the burdens that we all face. We pray your grace and need your grace and are dependent upon it for these things. We pray that as we depart from here, you will begin to be working in our hearts for as we gather to worship in the name of Christ on the Lord's Day this coming Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.